0: Hello, I'm Diana Thomas and I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to that Wilbur Smith show, a podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background of the world of Wilbur Smith.
1: The mother city came up over the horizon at last. The walls of the temple shone a ruddy rose in the sunlight and the lower city was brilliant white. The walls of the houses painted with the ash of the lake shellfish. The war fleet of Opet streamed out from the harbour to meet them. The shields and helmets of the legionaries sparkled in the sun as each ship in turn wheeled across the flagship's bows with the gilt work on her arrow-sharp prow catching the sunlight. They saw the raw skins hanging below the standard of House Barker, and a cheer roared out across the water. The flagship let them into the harbour, still scudding on the drive of her banked oars. Habakkuk aimed at the stone jetty below the city, where the crowds thronged the shore. The entire population of the city was out in their best and most brilliant robes, shrieking and cheering their new king from a hundred thousand throats. At the last possible moment, Habakkuk dropped his hand in a signal to the drummer and steersman. The ship spun on her heel with every oar clawing at the water to drag her to a halt, her side lightly touching the stone jetty. Lannan Hycanus and his train stepped ashore.
0: That was a reading from approximately the midpoint of Wilbur Smith's 1971 novel The Sunbird. And if you were listening to our last episode, you may wonder why on earth are we suddenly in an ancient, magnificent city? When, when we last left you, dear listeners, we were in 1971, uh, contem- contemporary at the time of writing, Botswana. If you're reading the book, you might also be wondering this, because as you'll recall from the last episode, the first half of this novel, The Sunbird, takes are three protagonists, uh, Ben Kazin, uh, Lauren Sturvesant, and Sally Benator, as they venture into um, the wilds of Botswana and discover this ancient city, the city of Opet, They discover its records. They discover its temple with its mysterious green pool under a very high drop. Uh, They discover its treasure house, and they discover the tombs of its 47 kings. And when we last saw our heroes, they, two of them, Ben and Laren, had just ingested the potentially fatal fungus that had left them hallucinating, insane, and, and as we say, close to death. And suddenly, at that moment, pretty much bang on the midpoint of the book, Wilbur does something absolutely extraordinary. And I really struggle to think of many other books, any other books, that, that pull this, have the kind of audacity to pull this kind of trick, Diana.
1: Yeah, what he does is he takes us from a, a, a spot in modern-day Botswana in 1971 back to the exact same spot in about 400 AD, and therefore he moves us from a dead city, an archaeological site barely visible um, from 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 the ground, and its and its relics, back to the point when it is the thriving prosperous, bustling city of Opet, the center of a kind of um, southern African empire established by um, Carthaginians, which is to say Phoenicians, who have escaped the destruction of Carthage in about 146 BC, traveled all the way through uh, along the coast of North Africa through the states of Gibraltar, down the west coast of Africa, and then into Central Africa itself to find their own city. Um, and it's Opet. And what has just happened is that the king, the newly crowned king of Opet, Lanon, has come back to his people, having finally su- having succeeded in the ritual that is essential for the establishment of his position, which is
0: He is the, the ritual is the killing of the the gray Lion, which is some sort of super lion. Uh and it's um it's sort of uh, in some ways typical of Wilbur that the uh the opening act of this story is killing what is quite possibly the very last of of this kind of rare animal. It is the very last uh, and rendering it extinct.
1: It's sort of like a lion equivalent to yeah. a great big saber-toothed tiger, isn't it? It has yeah. it has those sabre teeth. And it's a sort of mega lion. It is, it is to, a, to a lion what a mammoth is, to an elephant. or you yeah, know. Yeah. And, and Lanon has had to go out armed only with a spear. It's an absolute, It's very typical. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like all sorts of hunting rituals in Africa, which persisted well into the, the 19th century, where in order to achieve manhood in a tribe, you had to go out and confront either another warrior or a wild animal. And, and prove your manliness by killing it. And it's significant, not just because, as you say, Tom, it's very Wilbur esque, that he doesn't just kill, he kills the grey lion, the male, but the female is there as well, and she attacks him. So he has to kill both of them. In so doing, he wipes out the animal, which of course is very symbolic, because having wiped out the animal, then no further kings. I don't think the people of, of Opet or indeed Lanon himself think this through. But once you've killed that once you've killed the final gry lion, you've also killed the possibility of having any more ritual slaughterings of gry lions. No. Which also means therefore that you have no means of crowning a new king unless you go and find something else he has to kill. But I think that's a symbol an important bit of symbolism.
0: Yeah, it's it's really nicely symbolic, isn't it? And um this idea that absolutely at the peak of their powers, they've also basically sown seeds of their destruction um, which as we will see uh, becomes something of a prophecy Um, so Lannan Hycanus is this again this golden man Um, he's tall he's strong he's absolutely um, a, a, a god among men really He's Lara
1: and he, Sturvis, and in a, in he, is,
0: a, in a he, he is suspiciously similar to Lara and No, that's
1: the. I mean, that's that. <laughs> he is not only suspiciously, I mean, he actually plainly is, yeah. as it were. It's almost like a. Yeah. It's, it's what the what the opposite of reincarnation is. He's the pre pre-inca- pre-incarnation. Pre-incarnation, yeah.
0: And his best friend, companion, uh, and sidekick is this guy called Hoi Ben Ammon, who has been the scribe of the golden tablets that were found in Part One. Now we see how come to life. Who's Jewish also? He is also Jewish. Um or yeah, but he is Jewish. And he but although that hasn't stopped him becoming the high priest of no. uh, of Baal, who is the, uh, the, ah, yeah, the yeah. Carthaginian <laughs> Phoenician sun god. Um indeed not. And he is, he is a hunchback. He is an extraordinary poet and singer with his lyre. Uh he is a great linguist. Um and he is also something of a polymath. He can, he's a hes a warrior, uh, he's an administrator, he's uh, a counselor, um, and he prefigures very, very much, uh, I don't think anyone reading this book can miss it, Taita. Uh, he is a sort of proto-Taita, which is fascinating because I can't remember when River God was written, but it's something like 20 years later.
1: Yes, and it's, early, it's very, early, it's very, it's almost exactly 20 years later, and it comes out in 92 or 93, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he would, um, and of course he's also he is the ancient equivalent to the to the protagonist and first person uh, narrator of the first half of the book, uh, Benjamin Kazan, Kazin, sorry. Um, so so again you have this direct parallel that the relationship between Ben and Lauren is the relationship between um, Hoi and Lanon. Yeah,
0: and we join the city really. I think at the peak of its powers, it's um, governing a vast swathe of um, sort of southern central Africa, stretching all the way across to uh, Zimbabwe, uh, to the coast, to the to the grasslands of the south and the mountains of the north. Um, and the, the the city which was founded by these Phoenician uh, exiles is um, is absolutely the preeminent power in this region.
1: Oh, and, and I mean, and it, it's it's. It's absolutely organised like a classical state, a, Europe, a Mediterranean classical state. So, so the the, the military is organised along um, Roman um, uh, cohorts and legionaries. Um, it it has highly evolved um, administration, government. It's it's got again very much like the Roman Empire. It has. It has legions stationed along distant rivers, sort of like like the legions on the Rhine or the Danube, um, who are holding um, the just as the Roman legions held what they would describe as barbarians at bay. So the legions of Opet are holding back um, essentially the Black tribes coming down from the north.
0: Yeah, this is the Great Antu Migration, which is one of the, which is the great kind of population movement. Indeed, so, which I think probably. Defines modern Africa, absolutely. Um, because until then, the people who've lived in the area, uh, let's say we're, we're in kind of modern-day Botswana and its environs, um, have been uh, Bushmen, um, yes. who themselves are also being pushed out by the Bantu. So there is this sense of population pressure uh, against the borders. So as you say, it's very much like the late Roman Empire. Uh, and there's also the environmental degradation because the lake is becoming choked with weeds. Uh, the the path to the sea, which is their one sort of way out as a trading civilization, uh, is is getting is drying up. It's getting thinner and thinner. So it requires ever more dredging. So yeah, it's a civilization in tremendous power, but also with with real pressures on
1: it. I mean, which again is as Sam's exactly like Rome. That the, the problem with Rome was that the fail, you know if you fail to maintain the aqueducts, yeah, that bring water into a city of well over a million people. That city finds it very hard to function very, very quickly quickly, and so yeah, yeah, and i mean and and they you know and and they also have they have they've made contact with the Arabs,
0: yes, on the east coast of Africa,
1: yeah, with whom they've sort of had a common cause against against the Bantu tribes, uh, you know, and again, there's that sort of echo of, of the Romans in the Middle East, the two and fourth between Persian and Roman power in, in 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 this in in the middle East was a huge factor in in Roman rise and then fall yeah. which is of course in the fall where in 400 AD pretty much the point at which rome itself is finally um sacked by the barbarians
0: yeah and so um lanon hycanus has become the king uh with um her, as his sort of closest confidant and counselor so they embark on a progress a royal progress around the um, the, it's called the four kingdoms um the different parts of the of, of the kingdom there
1: is by the way uh, sorry a, a, a real game of thrones i mean this is again written way 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 before game of thrones but i, I couldn't help feeling a strong you know house of barker and all that kind of stuff
0: yeah and the, the nine families but, who formed the council of the Royal yes kingdom. yeah yeah, yeah uh, i
1: can't ha- i can't help wondering whether whether, whether um george R. R. martin was ever a fan of wilbur smith because there's a strong
0: yeah yeah be interesting to know anyway sorry anyway and on this progress we meet two more characters who form the uh, the remainder of the kind of quartet of characters that drive this this path of the book uh so we meet a young woman uh, called tanith who is identified as a uh, a person with oracular powers and she is brought back to the city of Opet to work uh, in the temple of Astarte, the moon goddess. And it turns out that actually the cave with the pool that we have found in part one is actually the shrine where she sits and delivers her oracular visions.
1: She is also um, um, Hoi's great love. I mean, he, he's 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 troubled because he's a priest and she's an, a priestess and an oracle. So, so it's not right for them to ever get together and yet he is absolutely passionately in love with her and and we get a sense that she is with him too so so there's that this sense of star-crossed lovers that they, they they love each other but they they can never be together yeah is the, is the setup yeah um and and
0: and then the other character we meet um is they go up to the northern frontier and they, they're they going to launch a raid across the river. And in fact, this is a slave gathering raid because like most classical civilizations, Opet is a slave society that has enslaved first uh, the Bushmen and then later uh, the kind of black Africans that they managed to capture uh, to work in their mines, their galleys uh, and all the other
1: jobs that they want to do themselves. Brief interlude here. It's an interesting question as to whether most classical civilizations were slave societies. Almost all had slaves in them, but societies which actually depended upon slaves for the running of the entire show are rare. I mean, Rome and Athens, basically, and all sorts of other places you think of having slaves weren't. Contrarywise, African cultures assumed the taking of slaves as part of your booty in a victory. So so there's a kind of mix where slavery is sort of plays different roles in different societies. Sorry, that was a brief interlude there. But no, no, it's, it's, it's,
0: I mean, it's, it's a true and good point. Um, so they cross the river and they discover this tribe called the Vendi, um, who are suddenly way more organized than any uh, black African tribe they've encountered previously uh, and are fighting in a much more... Uh, disciplined uh, tactically astute kind of way now they are still no match for the great legions of opet uh, they're defeated and their king is captured and their king is a man called manatasi and they have the opportunity to kill him but something persuades hey that this is a man who he, to whom he has some kind of a bond and he does not want to kill him
1: and this is where the final character link between the first and second half of the book resolves in last week's episode we discussed a character called timothy mcgaber who appears as um, ben kazin's friend and colleague and then becomes a rebel leader and his story appears to be kind of interesting and quite very exciting at times it brings in a couple of really big kind
0: of action set pieces
1: absolutely but but not Directly relevant to the story of the first half of the book. But Manatassi is going to be hugely, hugely relevant to the second half of the book. Um, there's a very important link physiologically between Manasseh and, and Timothy is that they are both ostrich footed or ostrich toed. That is to say, there's a cleft, a deep cleft between their big toe and the rest of their foot and their toes, their other toes. Um, so that, again, makes the parallel between them very, very clear. And and Hoi's decision to keep Manatasi alive against Lanon's strong advice, Hoei basically kind of tricks Lanon into letting him survive. And then he's renamed, he gets a sort of slave name of, of, of Tanith. Sorry, not Tanith. Oh, sorry. Timon. Timon. Um, he gets a slave name. Not to be
0: confused with. Sorry. Go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, not to be confused. Isn't Timon the meerkat in the line? Yes.
1: yes I, 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 I'm going to nick that joke. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, I think this thing's What's Hakuna uh, Matata? Hakuna Matata. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, against Lanon's orders, really, And certainly against his advice, Hay lets Manatasi live. um, But he's enslaved and he's given the name of Timon, which, of course, (laughs) in the years to come um, would be confusing, perhaps to modern readers, because it's the name of a meerkat who sings Hakuna Matata in The Lion King. I think it's safe to say that Timon is not the kind of chap who sings Hakuna Matata. In fact, he's that's very much the, pretty
0: much the opposite of his life philosophy. He's,
1: he's, he's totally not a Hakuna Matata kind no. of guy. No. Um, what he is at first is a very astute and devoted student, and Hai kind of falls prey to his own vanity here Yeah. Um, because he teaches Timon basically the kind of... Um, Rules of at the time contemporary military strategy, you know, using examples of great battles um, fought by Hannibal or by Alexander, and he shows Timon exactly how to organize an army. I don't think it's a spoiler. I think it's fairly clear as you're reading this, thinking, "Yeah, this is not going to end well," because Timon, who is playing the role of the of the loyal slave and and devoted student is all the time thinking of himself as Manatasi and 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 has every single intention of going back and reclaiming his crown
0: yeah and i think i think it's worth just sort of pausing to talk about the the characters here a bit because we, we, we talked in the last episode, we sort of disagreed a bit as to is the, story, the contemporary story built around th- three core characters, i.e. Ben, Sally, and Lauren, or is it four, um, including Timothy? And, and my argument was Timothy's, at best, a sort of half presence in the first half. What's interesting is the second half, those four characters all have their, their counterparts um, or their, their pre-incarnations, as you have it. But here, Manatasi, the, the, the Timothy uh, counterpart is much much more strongly drawn and is much more central to the story in fact yes I felt uh, in the second half that actually it's uh, Tanith uh, who's Sally's counterpart who is the least well drawn and the le- has the least to do yes um and um and Manatasi, and you see this very much in the the way Wilbur chooses to tell the story because the first part is all first person Ben Kazin's narration. The second part is told in the third person, mainly sticking with Hoi, but he does wander to other characters. And the character who gets the most time other than Hoi is Manitasi. And actually we see quite a lot of the story from his point of view, um, which is giving him extraordinary precedence in the story. um, And I think shows how absolutely central and also and this is something I think we can come to later when we talk about sort of the the overtones and some of the things that people have read into this story. But actually, he is given a lot of sympathetic material. We really suffer with him.
1: I was going to say I think it's I think it's very interesting and instructive. We've talked in the past about um, the role that um, Black African characters have in in Wilbur's books, and very often you, the, the two roles they tend to have are either as sidekicks or antagonists. In this particular case, you have a character who is the antagonist, as it were, of the city of Opet for very, very good reasons. I, In his mind, his motivation is absolutely clear and absolutely justified. But Wilbur makes, goes to a great length to show how, as, as Tom was saying, how he's made to suffer because what happens is that Hoy spots um, um Timon Manitasi. okay so Manatassi is as a slave Timon um with his lover Selene who's also a slave and he's very happy for the two of them but what they have done is kind of illegal within the city the slaves are not allowed to to have relationships they then try to escape and they're caught and like, once again Hui pleads for uh, Timon's life Selene is executed. Well, well she's
0: Tied behind an elephant and yeah. dragged across the ground for miles until she 's basically battered to death
1: yes, um, <laughs> Timon is basically sent down into the, is sent down into the mines, weighed down with these incredibly heavy chains are the chains which are attached to any slave that's tried to escape, and he suffers terribly and and, and it's plain that 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 and his and he escapes from the mines and at this point he's acting as a hero would do and and having escaped from the mines he plots his revenge on the people who put him there which is to say halanon Al- and, and, the, and, the, and the, basically the society of opet he sets about re-establishing himself as a king and a warlord and of course now he is He is uh, helped by the fact that he understands his enemy's strategy and he knows how to execute it himself. And he's an extraordinarily charismatic figure. And he builds up this enormous force of people as more and more tribes are drawn into his orbit. And he, he basically goes to the Arabs who have traditionally been... The, the allies of Opet and kind of makes them an offer they can't refuse. I mean, it's very, very clear to them that they kind of have the choice that they can either they can either be with him or they can be against him. It'd be a seriously bad idea to be against him. And this threat is developing beyond the borders of Opet. And the people in Opet have no idea of the storm that is brewing. Yeah, I
0: think uh, one of the things you'd have to say, Opet's intelligence network is pretty poor because um, they are clueless.
1: Well, they are, like well, or, or actually, what's happened is that Manasseh has turned, in contemporary spying terms, he's turned their agents into double agents. Yes, so, so they yeah. think that they, they do. They think that they they have an excellent spy network. Yes. What they don't realize is that that he has already controlled it. Yeah. I mean, and indeed, reminds me writing stories about um in, in the Saffron stories about SOE sending agents into occupied Europe and they thought they're being tremendously clever. Yes. And in fact every every single agent turned sent into um the Low Countries, as a matter of fact, was either caught and executed or or turned into a double agent for the Germans.
0: Yeah. Um meanwhile back in Opet, uh various things have been happening, um chief of which is that um hi, our hero, has uh, consummated his relationship with Tanith, the oracle. She, uh, again, it's sort of an echo of um, Sally and Ben. She comes to his bed one night during a festival, one of these sort of licentious Saturnalian-type festivals where um, all the rules are suspended, and she comes to his bed and surprises him there. Um, And they become lovers. Uh, And I think it's worth saying that it's interesting that they become quite uncomplicated lovers. It's complicated by the fact that they can't have the relationship, so they always have to keep it secret because he's a priest and she's a, an oracle and supposed to remain chaste. Um, but there's no one else involved. Um, so whereas the in in the contemporary story, um, Sally and Ben's love is very much complicated, and yeah. there's there's other factors at play which we didn't really go into in the past. Although well, so
1: Lanon Lanon does play a role. He, yes. in
0: at the very end sure. in... but 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 in the course of their uh it, he, there's the, it's not a love, it's not a love triangle between uh, in terms of vying for Tennis' no. affections. No. What is a love triangle? Uh is actually um and this is again a very, a very Wilbur thing is that Lannan, the king and Hoy have been best friends and inseparable companions and as Hoy falls more in love with Tanith and devotes more of his time to Uh, having his sort of illicit affair with her. He ignores Lannan and Lannan is jealous, not sexually, um, but of Hui's attention. And there's this lovely um, phrase that um, Wilbur uh, uses, this lovely description, uh, when we're seeing it from Lannan's point of view, um, which sort of really captures the joy of a really, really close friendship. Um, this is Lannan um, sort of reflecting Hoi's presence had provided the zest that made each triumph more valuable each disappointment or disaster easier to surmount all the good things happened when Hoi was there Um, and it's really beautifully capturing this this sort of masculine
1: friendship and also the the way in which in way in which uh, Lannan hides his sadness and his loss by, by as it were outwardly being incredibly angry and you know and 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 furious with 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 hoy mostly because hoy won't come and see him for sort of late night drinking sessions and chatting and sing songs because he's too busy having it off with with tanith um but it's 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 really good i think as much as there are I mean, as much as there are parallels between the first and second half of the book what's really nice is as you've said before, with for example, with with Timothy Stroke Manassi, there are modulations on it. So it's not as if the exact same things play out. Yeah. The same characters play different, they have different narrative and emotional arcs.
0: Yeah, it's almost like jazz, where you've got the same basic building blocks, but he's yes. improvising a different theme um, based yeah, based yeah, on, yeah. on the same characters. Yes, which which I really liked because I thought at one point it was going to be a sort of retread and that would actually have been quite tedious because you'd know exactly how no. it's going to end. Um, whereas here, it's diff- you've got the same, the same four characters but in a, in a sort of different configuration of affections.
1: You, you know how it must end. Yes, you do. You just don't know how it's going to end. Well, because you've,
0: you've seen the archaeological site of the city where no two stones are left standing upon each other. So yeah. Exactly.
1: And, and you know that at some point, and you have a pretty clear idea who's going to end it, yeah. but you don't know how that's going to happen. Yeah, until you sort of do, and then there's that kind of awful sense of, of, of impending doom.
0: Yeah, it's it's sort of like Titanic, isn't it? Where yeah, you, yeah. you know how it's going to end, and you know what's going to happen, but you still you're sort of absolutely gripped and fascinated to read on to, and almost part of you thinking maybe it won't happen. You know, maybe yes. maybe, this, maybe this is the version where uh, where where the ship doesn't sink and the city isn't destroyed,
1: or Leo doesn't sink, but beneath the water as 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 and Dion is singing. <laughs>
0: yes. The other thing that's happened is that because Ben is sorry, no, sorry The other thing that's happened is because ho is feels this incredible connection with uh, Manatasi, aka Timon. Um, he has actually really pushed his friendship with uh, Lannan to breaking point um, yes. by demanding that he spare uh, Manatasi and not execute him. And again, it's interesting because Hoy is sober. actually completely wrong. Here, you'd have to say that by far the yeah. best thing mm. for all of them, uh, and certainly for the city of Opet, would have be just been to execute Menatasi like any other rebel.
1: Yes. Runaway. I mean, I, the only thing that's missing here, actually, in the story, now I think about it is there a point in the book in which, as it were, Hoy realizes that he is responsible for this absolutely catastrophic mistake and feels any sense of remorse for it? I'm not sure that is i'm not sure there is no because he because it's weird that that as it were he's he has made this terrible mistake and yet somehow and of course there is a terrible price to be paid for it but there's never a sense that that is a key issue because at the point the thing which is bothering him by the end of the story is what is happening to tanith yeah yeah. He doesn't know it actually. There's a there is the tra or the or let's be this way, the tragic aspect of the story on an emotional level is is about Hui and Tanith, not about what Hui has done by allowing T Monstroke Man Manasseh to live.
0: Yeah. And so I think there's one more thing about Manasseh and then we'll get to, to what happens to poor Tanith. So uh, as we say, he, he goes over... The clue is in the words, poor Tanneth. Poor, poor Tanneth, yeah. Um, poor Tanneth, poor Tanneth. Poor, poor, Tannith. poor because he, he has sort of two bites at the cherry of rebuilding his power. And the first time he comes, and Hei, uh faces him again across the river with his legions. Yeah. And Hei, uh is a bit of a tactical genius, uh, again, like Tater. So Hai uh, absolutely destroys him, uh, destroys his army. And um as they're trying to cross the river. And um Manatasi flees, he flees to an island in the middle of the river. Hoi, who, like Ben, has extraordinary upper and lower body strength, all his limbs are incredibly powerful around this sort of hunchbacked um torso. Uh, he swims after him, catches him on the island again, yet again, probably should just kill him, but can't bring himself to do it because he feels the thing. So instead he chops off his hand. As a um, so that he can never wield a sword against the um, against Opet again, Manatasi, being a resourceful chap, you know, turns this to his advantage. You know, life gives you lemons, make lemonades. Life chops you off your hand, make a new uh, metal lion claw hand that can rip people's faces off.
1: Which is a good thing to have, let's be honest. How often have we thought, if only my hand was a great big claw and I could rip that so-and-so's yeah. face and, and, off? I mean, yeah, and, and, it, and yeah. this
0: is sort of the, the transformation of Manitassi into this absolutely remorseless um, killing machine. Yes. He amasses an army. Um, as you say, he goes to the Arabs, he gets them involved, he goes to every, it seems like every tribe in the southern half of Africa and basically makes them bow down to him. Uh, and give them up men to serve in his army, meanwhile in opet Tanith and Hoi have been pursuing their affair, and the inevitable has happened as indeed happens to lostris uh, in rivergod uh Tanith has fallen pregnant
1: yeah and and as as with um other kind of doomed romances there's a kind of there's a figure whose equivalent to the nurse in romeo and Juliet yes because there because there's a sort of ancient priestess who is supposed to be as we're chaperoning Tanis to make sure precisely make sure that nobody gets their hands on her yeah but um hoi has been sending her off to sleep by by basically doping her wine <laughs>
0: with with uh opium effectively which uh, uh
1: no yeah. i think it's with actually it's, it's with hemp seeds so it's dope it's it's cannabis if we're going to be specific ah. about drugs um, so she's happily floating away on this elixir, which she absolutely loves. She can't wait to go around to Tanith to 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 to, 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 Huy's, to have a nice drink of his doped up red wine. But but the but the priestesses, they are immensely jealous of Tanith. They're jealous of her powers, they're jealous of her influence because the king kind of depends upon her to, to they they're jealous of everything about her, beauty, her youth. And this simmering resentment is is going to have terrible consequences, as the book plays out.
0: Yes, because they discover that she's pregnant. She's violated the rules. Uh, she actually then miscarries the baby, but thus revealing the evidence.
1: Because of them, yeah. they, thought yeah. they, they 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 beat her up.
0: And so she is then every year they oh sorry every five years they have a festival, a sort of first fruits festival and the climax of this festival is they send a messenger to the gods and the way you send a messenger to the gods is you have a human sacrifice and the way they do this human sacrifice is that uh, we discussed in the previous episode there is this pool this bottomless pool in the um, cave which is the the temple to the goddess with this uh, oculus above it and a little kind of stone diving board that uh, contemporary archaeologists have discovered and it turns out the purpose of this diving board is It is literally a diving board. You take your human sacrifice, your messenger to the gods, and you push them off the end of it, uh, weighted down with golden chains, so there's no chance they'll um, swim, and they crash down, possibly die as soon as they hit the water. If not, they die pretty soon afterwards as they get sucked down into the bottomless depths.
1: Luckily, we think, a messenger has been sent to um, Hoi, who is out on the border, coming to terms with the approach of this gigantic horde saying come quick come quick uh Tanith is in danger and she thinks that he's going to come to save her but
0: yes because the idea is that Lannon can deny um her nothing once he really puts his mind to it uh he's incredibly persuasive Exactly. and so yes
1: and 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 cuz Lannon has agreed that 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 um that Tanith should be that he sacrifice partly because he's incredibly cross with her because she's given him all sorts of prophecies indicating that his future is essentially uh, very short and terminal, um, bad yes, very, very
0: classic classic cases of shooting the messenger.
1: Absolutely, very bad, bad things are in store for him. But in time honoured fashion, the messenger does not get through. But it's okay because Hoy is actually coming back to the city. All may yet be saved.
0: But Hoy, having no idea that. Um... Tanith is in danger, goes straight to the palace because he's all, he's all thinking about Manitasi and his vast army that's uh, coming down. So he goes to the palace, he tells uh, Lannan all about it, and then because he's covered hundreds of miles in about three days on foot, he passes out um, and not realizing anything about the danger that Tanith is in. So Aina, the nurse, thinks, oh, well, I'll go and warn him. But, but again, fate intervenes because one of these nasty embittered nuns um, smothers her uh, just just to make sure that nothing can stop her revenge on Tanith who she hates for all sorts of reasons including the fact that she wants to be the next kind of mother superior
1: as a result of which um, Hai wakes up in time for the great ceremony and is expecting to go there to sing one of his legendary singers' your greatest hits Hi, <laughs> yes
0: or the hymn, the hymn to the goddess that uh, accompanies the plunge of the sacrifice into the pool.
1: Absolutely. Just as the Eagles cannot do a show without Hotel California, or the Stones can't do a show without Jumping Jack Flash, so you cannot have a ceremony without Hoy coming in and singing his, his, his great song. Yeah. And as he gets there, he sees that the sacrifice of the year is Tanith. Yeah. And there's nothing he can do about it.
0: Yeah. And this is really the point at which everything collapses very quickly. Tanith is dead. Hoi is heartbroken and Manatasi is bearing down on the city with an army of I think it Wilbur gives a figure of like 3 quarters of a million men, which by ancient standards is is extraordinary. I mean it's beyond almost any army that gets put in the field until probably the 20th century. Um yeah, yeah. So uh, these these are very much the last days of Opet. And I think uh, rather than talk through every uh, last twist and turn of the, of the final battle, it's fair to say we know how this is going to end because Opet is going to end up with um, the figures that we found in the tomb of Lannan and um uh, in in, among the tomb of the kings and with the city absolutely razed to the ground and it's funny when the romans destroyed carthage It was the most comprehensive destruction in the ancient world legendary destruction yes. and the, the famous line from the history is so that no two stones stood on top of each other and it's a, the it's a,
1: Lenda est carthago is the is the latin form. Uh, yes carthage
0: must yeah. be destroyed um and you sort of feel for the poor Opetians because it's happened to them twice now. Uh, first in Carthage uh, and now in Opet. You'd
1: think they'd learn, wouldn't you? Yeah.
0: I think there's, there's two things I want to go into as, uh, in the rest of the show. One is the fact that we've had about 300 pages of this massive story. And in all of this, the, the, the characters who we got to know and love in the first half of the book remain, so far as we know, in the middle of this kind of fatal uh, to curse of Tutankhamun trance, we've got, we've never f- flipped back to them once. So they are exactly the s- state of stasis th- that we, sort of in suspended animation where we left them halfway through the book. Well, they're assumed to be, I mean,
1: I think, I think, I think the two guys are assumed to be dead. Well, I, well, and fact, I, 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 I read the entire book thinking, Wow. This is extraordinary creative bravery on, on Wilbur's part in the sense that, I mean, obviously, you know, the ancient characters are going to die because.
0: Yeah. We've, we've seen their bodies.
1: <laughs> but also, I mean, it's, 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 it's 1, 1,500 years ago. So hello. Yeah. Um, but to kill both is, is extraordinary. You think, but you might be wrong.
0: To readers, anyone reading this in the Kindle edition, uh, there's a bit of sleight of hand, which I think is just an accident, where you get to the end of the, um, the opet sequence, the ancient sequence, and the screen that you get on a Kindle when you finish a book saying, rate this book, if you enjoyed this book, here are some other things you might like, flashes up. Oh my goodness. And you think, oh my gosh, that's the end. We're never ever going to find out what yeah. happened conclusively to, to Ben and to Lauren. If you are reading the Kindle edition, dear reader, flip past that, close that screen and keep going because there is more. In fact, then there's a page of footnotes and then you actually get a little sort of postscript which actually um, gives you a little bit more kind of closure. So uh, that's my top tip to readers reading. It's a
1: very good top tip. If you are like me and you actually like the books that are books, that problem doesn't arise. But it's a bit like what you're describing. It's a bit like those movies, like a a (laughs) a Marvel movie where you you have to sit through like, more credits than you can possibly believe. Where there are like three thousand people, who, every single one of whom has to be named, who've done all the CGI or whatever. And finally, you get this little kind of bit at the end, so which
0: stinger at the end, yeah, which
1: which sets up the next film or whatever. But also, in this particular case, the book is resolved by a series of newspaper cuttings. So yes, you go straight from weirdly enough, actually, in the in the in the actual book book, the problem is exactly the opposite. It's that you go straight from there's no kind of there's no ending at all. Yeah. The the last sentence of the of the of the kind of op-ed sequence is there. And then suddenly you see these newspaper nice cuttings. It's like, whoa, and you right. sort of yeah. double take. But but it does pull everything together. Yeah. But in the meantime, what I would say is that each of the two halves by itself would be insufficient as a book but taken together they're amazing
0: yeah I, I i would actually be a little bit kinder than that i think each of the two halves by itself would be a cracking novel taken together they're on another level again uh,
1: well actually they'd be a cracking novel as it were if each of them was expanded to full novel length if you see what i mean so if each yeah. half was like but But it's the combination of the two. And to anybody anybody who loves Wilbur's books, they are also completely fascinating because you can see in them the kind of seeds of all sorts of ideas, which we've sort of hinted at as we've been going along, of all sorts of ideas and themes and characters and settings that are kind of become absolutely central to his work over the next... 20 or 30 years.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the one other thing I want to talk about, I think we probably do need to address the elephant in the room. There are people who see in this novel a lament for the loss of white rule in Africa. This idea that the uh, Opet civilization, the Phoenicians, are a kind of white minority who come in, establish this tremendous civilization, uh, which brings kind of enlightenment and civilization to the darkest Africa. And then that the black Africans swarm in and destroy them and cannot preserve this, this, you know, the light is overwhelmed by the darkness. And the fact that, um, in the character, the the explicit kind of link between the character of Manatasi the Bantu king, and then, uh, Timothy McGeber, who is effectively a sort of, um, Robert Mugabe style guerrilla leader, freedom fighter, in you know, anti-colonialist. You can't r- completely dismiss that idea, I think.
1: I take that point, but I think certainly the Timothy character in the first half of the book is not presented at all sympathetically once he becomes a freedom fighter. And, and, and the Chinese and the guerrillas are absolutely presented as villains. On the other hand, this is why I was going on about how Manatasi is, is presented. I think there's a very good, I guess it just depends which way you see it. You could just as easily interpret it as the comeuppance of a slave society. You have a character who is a free person who is forced into slavery twice in two different ways, who is initially kind of belittled not intentionally by Huey, but he's kind of patronized by Huey, and then actively tortured and abused and who takes his revenge upon this slave society by reclaiming the land for the people. Well, actually, as you say, they aren't strictly speaking the people who lived there before because the people who lived there before are the Bushmen, but nevertheless, he reclaims Africa for the Africans. And so you could equally see this as a kind of a parable of Africa in the 20th century being reclaimed from white societies and indeed white slavers by indigenous Africans. So I think it kind of depends which way you see it from. I mean, I can I can certainly see that argument in the first half, as I say. I think the second half of the book, though, is is deeply sympathetic to the suffering of Manatasi, and I think it's therefore much more of, almost like a almost like one of Tanis' prophecies it's an oracle saying this is what's going to happen because this is how you've treated people
0: yeah I'd say I'd, I read the critique before I read the book so I was sort of thinking about it as I read it and I I mean it's it's a work of literature so it it, it it's open to many interpretations yeah. But certainly, I think if you read it, and certainly reading those Menatasi sections, I think giving so much voice and agency to Menatasi as a character, really, you, as you say, it, it, the tragic fate of Opet becomes kind, as you say, kind of their comeuppance. And there's actually a bit uh, in the final battle where, uh, as well as their kind, their black slaves and their um, sort of their nobles descended from the Carthaginian nobility, uh, they also have these. Sort of Bushman Opetian sort of mixed race people who who work for them and fight for them, uh, and they abandon uh, Opet uh, in the middle of the battle. Uh, and one of them says, uh, "If you had given us something to fight for, some station above that of a dog, we might have stayed with you." So again, a pretty sharp rebuke yes. to the way that the people at the Opet civilization has has treated uh, the people it
1: lives with. So yeah, I which you could certainly say, for example, if if the set white settlers in Kenya had treated the uh, black Kenyans who fought for Britain, the empire as it was then, in World War II, and fought very bravely in, in both East Africa and also in the Far East. If they had been treated well at all, or even given the slightest dignity when they came back from war, having served their crown with great courage and skill, there might not, there might not have been a Maa rebellion. So, so, so that is in exact parallel to things that had happened in twentieth-century Africa. So, I think there he is absolutely kind of saying, "Listen, if you treated, if we, if if the white rulers of twentieth-century Africa had treated the people who'd fought for them well, they would might not now have rebellions against them all across Africa."
0: Yeah, I think the other, th- my final thought on this is that I'm not sure that that kind of you know, colonialism, post-colonialism, decolonialism dynamic, I don't think that's really what Wilbur's preoccupied with. I think he is, and we discussed this before on the podcast, he is very much an observer of life as it is, not as we might wish it to be. And while I think he's very, very strong on personal right and wrong, in civilizational terms, I think he's just a realist. And I think that he's... What he describes is, you know, peoples get powerful, yeah. peoples, you know, conquer, then they decline. Someone else comes along who's more powerful yeah. and pushes them out. And it doesn't really matter if they're black, if they're white, if they're, you know, Phoenician or Egyptian or wherever. This is just the way of the world. It's very, um, again, going back to the animal kingdom, it's, the, you know, there's there's predator and there's prey. Um, and I think, I don't think there's a value judgment on any of this in the way there would be if it was some kind of Afrikaner nationalist writing the novel. I think it's just, there are powerful people and then you make enemies and if they get strong enough, they will knock you back.
1: Yeah. And, and, and in this particular case, you've asked for, in the case of opet, which if we take that as being a parable, they've asked for it. They've asked for it in the general and they've asked for it in the particular. In other words, the general treatment of people and the particular treatment of one person who is going to then be their nemesis.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's all we've got time for this week, wrapping up our discussion of Wilbur's seminal novel, The Sunbird, which, uh, as we discussed at the beginning, was a novel really charted the direction he was going to take for pretty much the rest of his career. But we're not done with the world of lost cities and ancient civilizations in Africa. Because next week, we're joined by the anthropologist Eust Fontaine from South Africa to talk to us about the historical ruins of Great Zimbabwe, the mysterious megaliths uh, in the middle of the country of the the same name uh, that remain still shrouded in mystery and speculation, uh, and evidence of a fantastic stone-building civilization that once flourished in the heart of Africa. So do join us for that.
1: Yes, indeed time to wrap up the show so it's goodbye from me diana thomas
0: and it's goodbye from me tom harper That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne, Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer Niso Smith.